My guest this episode is the creator of one of the best-known Irish music tracks ever. In fact, it holds the lofty position of being in the top five best-selling Irish singles of all time. It replaced the national anthem, for God's sake, as the last tune of the night in Manny's a nightclub, up and down the country still to this very day. But there's a lot more to the man they call the maniac, his pirate radio past and his penchant for expensive suitcases, just to name but a few. This is Mark McCabe. Did at any stage, regardless of your professional and your personal achievements... Did it ever really feel like your whole life was being defined by maniac? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> you must have had that, though, because your name is synonymous with that track. Whenever yeah, it anyone's... still is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in reality, it's, it still is. You know, when you... Uh, when you... I can't say when you, when you... I'm talking about me. When a track like that garners the attention and support and sort of fits itself into almost, you know, popular Irish culture Mm -hmm. and then manages to reach, you know, Irish expats all over the world. Mm -hmm. It's an achievement that, you know, I always say this, I always kind of feel a little bit shy about it because I know what it takes to write a real song and to put yourself in a position where you uh, emote on that level. And Maniac doesn't (laughs) fit any of those stereotypical song structures it's one of these things that's just of its time but for whatever reason it just continues to keep on rolling and rolling so I was always shy about it because I kind of felt embarrassed that I had achieved and the song had achieved so much by comparison to what an awful lot of people will spend their entire lives trying to achieve so I've had a a love-hate relationship with the track Um, I, I still do I mean, I love it as much as I hate it. Um, I hate it most of the time, but you put me in a club and you put the crowd there and we put it on and it just goes off. And there's just no... It would be stupid of me to deny myself the pleasure that I get when I get the admiration from people in, in, a, in a live venue like that. But it would be stupid of me to deny you know, what people want. And ultimately... It's the people who have made that track what it is. You sound like a man who's made peace with it to a certain extent. Yeah, I have, yeah. Because I remember kind of reading, I'm not sure if like, it was an interview or a direct quote or whatever, but I remember you kind of maybe mid naughty saying that you'd never perform it again yeah, or that you didn't yeah. want anything to do with it. You yeah. almost wanted to distance yourself from and it. And I didn't. I mean, I stopped for the guts of 10 years. I just, it just became too much. And you have to remember that this came at a time when, you know... People were still buying singles. Uh, The chart still mattered. You know, most people weren't online yet. So it was a completely different structure in order to make something popular. It had to really be popular. It had to really be something as opposed to just being, you know, uh, a little click somewhere Mm. that happened to sort of snowball online. This was a time when things were really, really different. And it was that awful time of pop music where it was like the Backstreet Boys Mm. and uh, too many bad pop songs to mention. Uh, and here was this thing sitting in the middle of it. And that came out of the 90s, you know, rock scene of Oasis and Blur and Radiohead. So people were really kind of uncomfortable with dance music being sort of, you know, popularised like that. And anybody that was into dance music at the time was into, you know, dance music. Mm-hmm. Underground um, kind of thump and stuff. Because you, know. you even had like trance anthems that were making the top 40 at the yeah. time, you know, like all the positive stuff. Yeah, big time. So and this just didn't fit within any of those, even though it was a dance record, 
you know, the dance community certainly weren't standing up and going, wow, this is really good, man. You yeah, know? <laughs> well done. It wasn't cool enough. So it certainly wasn't cool enough. But uh, yeah, I kind of, I, I drew a line on it and I said, I'm going to move on. And then uh, just the way the world works and the way the world turns, uh, I was offered the opportunity to do it at the Electric Picnic. And I always said that I would do something with it if I felt that the time was right. And I kind of felt the time was right because there had been a little bit of an upsurge. Uh, Nikki Byrne had, had pushed it on a, on a radio show and it went back to n- number one for three hours or something <laughs> on iTunes. <laughs> and uh, then I was approached to, to do the picnic and uh, I said, look, why not? Outside of the whole maniac thing, in terms of your professional life, it's kind of safe to say you've always been involved in music and predominantly radio. Oh, yeah. Um, you were a part of RTE. Pre that, you were a part of the infamous Pulse FM in Dublin, which yeah. was quite a seminal station in its time. At what age did that kind of direction begin to appeal to you? Uh, from as way back as I can remember. I remember my dad used to have this amp and he used to do the, the local school discos. Like He wasn't a DJ, but mm-hmm. he would always record Top of the Pops for us every Sunday evening. And uh, he would then play those tapes at these school disco, discos and he had this amp and uh, I took that amp from him and I got a speaker and I remember running a cable up to my sister's bedroom because we lived in a, in a three story house and she was up on the third floor so she'd have all her friends over and I'd run this cable and put this speaker in the room and just play them tunes from, from downstairs so like as far back uh, as I can, I can remember I always wanted to do something with music I wasn't sure exactly what it was but I was always involved with like in school like lighting or sound or uh, that type of thing. And then I went on to work for a, a PA company and eventually started to mix sound for bands and do lighting for uh, fashion shows and stuff like that. So I was always in and around stages. I remember somebody in, uh, in the place where we worked because I was young. Uh, and I used to kind of just hang out in music shops. And in a way, they kind of gave me a job, but they didn't give me a job. I was mm. just always there. You were there to lift stuff or to go get stuff just from the back whatever. store. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I remember somebody saying to me, would you not be out playing football with your friends? It was a Saturday afternoon. And yeah. I was like, no, like, <laughs> I enjoy this. Yeah. And my dad had to write a letter at one point, uh, which said, you know, I give permission for such and such a company to act as guardian for my uh, son because I was in like the bagot. What age were you at this stage? Uh, 13, okay. 12, 13, something like that. So. But I was in like the Rock Garden, the Bag It In, all of these like big venues mm. uh, at a really good time because there were a lot of bands that were kind of just taken off then. And that whole Irish indie scene was getting really, really big, like Slattery's, places like that, you know. Um, so always, as, as far as I can remember, I've always been involved with staging or production or something in that shape. And then I kind of got bit with a bug of radio. When I got a uh, one of those mic transmitters mm-hmm. uh, that you can tune to your your radio, yeah, yeah. so I took it apart and figured out that <laughs> I could put a an input to it and tried to put an aerial up on the roof of the house and tried to broadcast to my my local <laughs> neighbours. So, um, and then that just grew from you know buying a transmitter and getting involved with pirate radio and just you know growing it from there. Before we jump into the pirate conversation, this is an important question for a DJ. So. Prepare yourself. Okay. Can you remember the first record you bought with your own money? Oh, wow. Um, I think it was... I think it was either Mrs. Wood's Joanna or The Bouncer. Do you remember The Bouncer? I do. You're not, down, you're not coming in. Of course, yeah. I think it was one of those two. 
Okay, I can remember mine. I can vividly remember it. It was Bobby Brown's On Our Own. Oh, wow. And I bought it because it was in Ghostbusters 2. Okay. And the Ghostbusters <laughs> were on the sleeve. And so as a result, I loved the song. Um, but I can remember far back, like my dad copying tapes and stuff. And it was like Michael Jackson's Bad and The Best of Wham were wow. kind of my tapes. Okay. Same way like The Karate Kid and Back to the Future were my films. But the first, I remember my seven inch vinyl in a shop in Wexford. It's not there anymore. Um, I can't even remember what it was called. It was across the road in Pennies. But they, you used to walk in, it was real old school. They had like all the seven inches of the charts up on the wall in order. Oh yeah. So And I just remember seeing the Ghostbusters thing on it. And the, the colour of the single was yellow and the colour of the album was blue. Wow. But I was too young <laughs> to be bought the album or to afford it. And somehow in my pocket money, I managed to buy this Bobby Browning. But the bouncer kind of trumps that in terms of cool factor. Yeah. Bobby Bobby Brown yeah. was cool in the 80s, but yeah. <laughs> the bouncer is kind of cooler, you know and what I mean? Mrs. Woods, Joanna. You know? Oh, yeah, of course. And that was like, again, that was a time when you, know, you couldn't just download a track. You had to physically get yourself out of wherever you were and go and find it and then hope that they had it in stock. And I remember bringing it back and I had heard Mrs. Woods, Joanna in particular so many times on Sunset and uh, Club FM, I think. And it was just weird to actually have my own copy that I could kind of go back to the beginning mm-hmm. and that's how it actually starts because you never actually heard how it started because they would always mix it with something else of course yeah, yeah So, speaking of we mentioned like the whole pirate radio scene Pulse how did you become involved in that you said that you set up your own transmitter and tried to broadcast to your local area so how does yeah. one go from that to being a part of one of the most important Dublin pirates ever well <laughs> there was a guy called Connor G who uh Holding court in the background. Holding court in the background here. <laughs> um, Connor brought me out. I always wanted to see Pulse. I always wanted to see the station. And Connor had been working there. So he brought me out one day. I think that's what happened. Wasn't it? He brought me out there. And uh, I met the two guys, Ronan and Dara. I met Ronan first. Uh, and I was running a station in Wexford during the summer because myself and Connor had been running a, a station in Wexford. And they gave us the jingles from the Dublin station. So we had Pulse FM in Wexford. And uh, What year was this? Oh, wow. That would be, what, 94, 95 or something like that? I vaguely remember that. Because like, obviously I'm from Wexford town. Yeah. I remember like Kiss FM in town being a thing. And I, were, you, were you running from like North Wexford, from Court Town area? Or where? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I don't know. We have no idea how far we actually got <laughs> out because it was pretty much just for us and the population of Dublin that moved to... That descended upon Gortown in the summer months. Well, it, was, it was Castletown, but we okay. were in this... I mean, we had a huge mast, massive mast, because the house that we, we were staying in, that we were given for the summer, uh, which was really weird, had leather doors and... What? Yeah, yeah, and, and loads of uh, underwear in bags <laughs> <laughs> upstairs. That sounds like a serial killer's gaff. It was really, really weird. Um, I think you were given it as a patsy and the cops were going to raid it at some stage and <laughs> yeah. you were responsible for something. We that. just did it for the local, the local community. Uh, there was probably about three hundred Dublin people hmm. um, who descended on Castletown and still do, and we just uh, we did it for them. And I guess after that, uh, I came back up because the summer ended and everybody went home, um, as you do. And I just started to to hang out with them a little bit more, and then kind of got more and more involved, and used to stay there until stupid o'clock in the morning, just doing stupid things like. I'd see cables running and I'd be like, you know what, you should really replace that cable. You know, if you, you really were the wanted nag. to be... Oh, it was a huge <laughs> nag. I mean, I nagged them to the point where we moved out of a shed into a commercial premises, bought an Optimod, which was like for a pirate in the 90s, it was mm-hmm. just like unheard of. The holy grail. It was a really expensive bit of kit. Uh, nagged them to death. And they did. And, it, you know, it paid off. 
ultimately because they kind of left the airwaves as um, one of the last great big, mm-hmm. big pirates, you know. And it left such a legacy as well, but we'll talk about that in a minute. It was, of course, a very different time we spoke about it. Like it was pre-internet. This was kind of where a lot of people got their dance music fix from. And I was once told a famous story, right, that if you had a Pulse FM jacket... <laughs> You could walk into any teenage disco or nightclub in the Dublin County area yeah. and it was like a golden ticket for the shift. Pretty much. That you could walk <laughs> in and that a mob of young ones would descend upon it. So I don't. I want to know, can you confirm or deny? So yeah, that is the oh, truth. Yeah. That was the truth, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, there was T-shirts as well. Um, oh, so there, there was a hierarchy was, of the T-shirt yeah, and the jacket. Hierarchy, so. But we, uh, yeah, we all had the jackets and we all thought we were the, the bomb. And my jacket is actually, I know where it is. Uh, a friend of mine had it's it. in the it's car there. what are you lying for are you going to wear it tonight um, no I mean it was just again it was one of those times where people had just got a little bit bored with what was happening on commercial radio in Dublin um, it was like Rock 104 um, 98 was still probably 98 and so on and it was uh, Capital FM or Radio Ireland or whatever they were at the time so um, Pulse just offered commercial dance music that's all it did and a little bit of R&B during the morning uh, but otherwise, you know, as the day went on, it got progressively harder. Um, and it was we were living it like it was it was entirely us. When we got up in the morning, it was the music we listened to. We would get compilations from being on holiday or things like that. And people would bring in and they play the track. Everybody would copy it. They would then go out and play those tracks all over the place. Like people like Tony Fenton were ringing us. Wow. And going, hey, it's Tony. Uh, hey, guys, you know, send, just to let you know you're sounding great. And we were like, wow. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it was really, it, it just, it landed at the right time, just in terms of people getting over that kind of indie rock uh, explosion that happened in the mid to late 90s. And then the sort of dance boom that happened from 2000 onwards. In terms of pirates, like we said, it's always cast as one of the more important ones because of the influence it had at the time and also the money it made. Wasn't there an independent report afterwards where it was kind of put on a par with the likes of 98 and stuff in terms of being known and money-wise and things? But the legacy that it left and the platform that it gave to so many people like yourself, to Connor, who else was there that's kind of still around? Darrow D, Al Gibbs. Uh, Damien McCall, Steve Cooper was involved. Um, Jenny Green. Jenny Green. Uh, Oh man! A couple of the lads who found a Christmas FM were involved in it as well. Dara yeah. was one of the owners, so yeah, and he set up uh, Christmas FM Garvin, with Garvin Rigby mm-hmm. with the Zoo Crew. Um, yeah, I mean, pretty much anybody who was on air there went on and had a career somewhere in terms of radio. Seeing as it was so successful, how did it actually come to an end? Was it raided or what was the story? No, we went off air on the 30th of June uh, 1999, I think. And we went off under the illusion that... um, You would get a legal license. We would get a legal license. Well, that wasn't, you know, exactly said. It was more a case of, look, in order for you to apply for this license, you're going to have to cease transmission. So we went off air and... A conglomerate was formed which had uh, The Edge was involved with one of the submissions. There's uh, always a rock star somewhere. Bob yeah, Geldof yeah. loves sticking his oar into these things as well, doesn't he? Yeah. The late great John Reynolds was involved. Uh, Paul McGuinness was involved with our consortium. He was involved in the original Beat consortium as well. He was Paul McGuinness, yeah. was he? Yeah. He was a yeah. co-owner in the early days. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a bunch of guys who had an interest and they obviously saw that there was a, a market for this. So, I mean, I... I 
you know, I've stated on a number of occasions, Pulse was the reason that we have Beat, that we have Spin, that we have Spin Southwest, that we have iRadio, because we proved that it was economically viable to run a youth station uh, in this country. Um, and it was a real disappointment when we didn't get the license because we had a pretty strong application going in. But Dennis O'Brien is Dennis O'Brien. Mm. And, uh, so I'm assuming it was the license that Spin eventually won, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, we were all pretty pretty good, at, but a lot of us had, uh, at that point, I had already got a call from 2FM, from RTE. Uh, John Power was already there, so he was kind of, you know, flying the flag for me and Connor and, and for a couple of others. I went to 104, Jenny went to 104. Um, so, you know, we all were kind of like, it was bittersweet. Yeah, it, but it wasn't the end of the world. You still had something to go. How many of you actually went to RTE? Uh, there was Damien, me, Connor, John, Jenny, Al McQuillan. Um, there's still quite a lot to come from one pirate. Like yeah, that's, yeah. you know, to the national broadcaster. Yeah. It's a huge number. Like yeah. We keep talking about the legacy of Pulse. Moving on to the RTE days, like the 6 to 6 things on 2FM, that era was hugely influential even to myself I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for that well, like pure non-commercial dance music from 6pm on a Saturday evening to 6am Sunday morning do you look back now and surprise that all of you were allowed such freedom and control <laughs> on the national broadcasting <laughs> airwaves if you only knew what? well I know some of it <laughs> I was present with some of it oh, I was young man. but like to be in there doing that you know was just like wow you know we just like you couldn't for us, it was like, it was just heaven mm. because we had we had the run of the place from six o'clock on a Saturday to six o'clock on a Sunday. And any time there was a big event like Creamfields or Homelands or Gate Crash or anything like that, we'd always bail back to the studio and do an after session. I remember listening to Power One like Sunday morning after Creamfields. We were on the drive back and Power had lost his voice. Yeah. I remember yeah, that. And it was yeah. just like and me and mind. And we, yeah. <laughs> and we were sitting at a petrol station in Dolphin's Barn yeah. trying to get fags and bottles of water and yeah. chewing gum. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It was one of those situations. Yeah. I've, I told you this story lately. Like I personally have two memories of my early involvement in radio before I started doing it professionally. The first was I did a summer on Kiss FM, the Pat O'Keefe-owned edition of it from the basement of Ballymun Cabs at the top of O'Connell Street. J. Oh, Pigeon gave me the geek because I won the obviously the Creamfields 2001 thing via yourselves with 2FM so I got the, the half hour afternoon slot and then Jay I met him a month later and he was like do you want to do a summer I was like yeah so some of the, like, the memories of that are like I was on a Monday afternoon and going up and discovering that like a load of junkies had robbed the decks wow. and that like you know we said, do, you know, do you remember Fabio you know, yeah, Fabio's yeah. still on the go yeah. Fabio running around trying to find out who had the decks and where they were and stuff like that and putting up masks on our transmitter aerials on like a building in Cable Street you know, at all hours of the evening, you're just like, I should be at home studying for me leaving. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, or actually, yeah. I think I'd done my leaving at that stage. But my other early radio story, and this is the one I told you, like when, when we met up last summer for the first time in years, was that I remember coming in to do an edition of The Firing Squad with Mr. Spring, Timmy Hannigan. And I'll never forget this. Like you used to do, wasn't it? A kind of a chart show between six and eight. It was yeah. sponsored by Abbey Discs. No. No. No, we just... I made that up then. Yeah, no, we didn't. uh, I mean, it it was in the sense that Billy was, you know, forever... Supplying the tunes. Supplying the tunes. Or getting stuff in next Tuesday. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, we were really lucky in that sense that he he knew the power that we had as such being on the national broadcaster. So So if you were playing it, people would be in to buy it, basically. So he'd get one copy and he'd sell 100. Yeah. Kind of be the way he he would see it, which was great for us. So it was unofficially sponsored in a way. Yeah. But I remember walking in one evening and I remember you sitting there with a baseball cap on, fag in your hand, 
the same hand on the fader putting it up to talk on the mic and I remember just stopping and thinking and going that looks cool as fuck okay. and I don't even smoke <laughs> you know what I mean yeah, you I mean, used to be able to smoke in the street yeah, <laughs> yeah. so um, yeah I mean it was it was a golden age of radio um, yeah it was like I mean ultimately it was all down to Timmy and Ian Wilson mm. you know they were the two that, that kind of recognised that myself and John and Connor had you know an audience and had a vibe and that that was something that you know should be on the national broadcaster so we were blessed we really were i mean we were really lucky in in the in the fact that we got chosen to sort of present those shows and to have the opportunity to sort of share that music and to continue the legacy of what what we had been doing on pulse because you know everybody was looking for the gig on 2fm mm-hmm. you know don't be fooled everybody wanted to go there that was the the golden uh, the golden egg in terms of broadcasting and for me I was like I don't want to work anywhere else but RTE mm-hmm. so um, we were all you know blessed and, and extremely grateful to have that opportunity and nothing like that will ever happen again you know it was that sort of that time when it was just at such a peak that we had all of these UK promoters coming in you know the point was stuffed every couple of months with spring parties with winter spring parties, parties party, gay, gay crasher cream fizz. Uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones you know and then everything else that was happening, like Planet Love and everything else around the country. So, And you were at the epicentre of it all. Yeah. Because it was such an important time. And I've spoken about this to people, like doing a dance music radio show myself, been like doing my Saturday selection for nearly 12 years now. And it it's not as important anymore as it was back in that era, I feel. Whilst it is still important, obviously, to be playing that music on the airwaves and, you know, for the people who are into it. But back then, it was the only means you had as such of hearing fresh new underground yeah. dance music because the internet nobody really had broadband and I remember if you wanted to like listen to BBC Radio 1 I'm not sure if there was some kind of um, limitations in terms of being in Ireland at the time if you could listen live and even like downloading tracks and stuff or downloading sets was unheard of because like I said not many people have broadband yeah. so it was the way to get new music if you were into dance music you read The Star on a Friday you read yeah. Mark Havner's Club Mix and you listened to John Power on a Friday night and yourselves then 6 to 6 yeah. you know on the Saturday and yeah. that was just it for people. And then, of course, going out to the clubs as well. You know, it was just, it was like a youth movement. Like, you know, they talk about in the 90s, people going to raves and meeting at petrol stations for directions and stuff like that. It wasn't much different than that in a way because, you know, you'd have people ringing each other the next day going, did you hear that new whatever track on such and such a label that McKay played last night or the Power played last night? Yeah. And it was the thing people talked about. Yeah. Whereas now we're so awash with new music. Well, you and get it's, it like that. Like it's so accessible. You Shazam it and you've got it. Like, exactly. So that's, and people forget that that was kind of like, that was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's not that long ago, really. No in the scheme of things you know and I mean 2000 to 2005 was kind of when I mean the iPhone's 10 years old so 2008 is when the, the iPhone came out and when the iPhone first came out it didn't even have 3G you know it was still on GPRS and there was a lot of like issues with people trying to unlock them over here because remember they only worked on yeah. American networks I know people had like sideline businesses doing it yeah. you know so that was like when you take that window between 1999 and 2008 say you know, radio was kind of still in its peak uh, in the sense that there wasn't really anywhere else to sort of get that shared mm-hmm. uh, experience in that way, you know. That's so true. In comparison to your RTE peers, uh, the likes of Timmy and Power, I can really only speak from personal experience on this because of like the amount of time I spent in Kamol and in club space because that was kind of like my introduction to that world. But I remember seeing your name on like lineups in Dublin but you weren't as busy around the country. Would you put that down to you maybe not playing as 
the music that was as hard as them or do you think it was the maniac effect that maybe kind of might have affected bookings for more I don't want to say underground because it was banging trance and hard house yeah. do you know what I mean but at the time that was kind of underground in comparison to what was popular yeah. so do you think that maybe the whole maniac effect that was a bit of a knock on or were you just more at home in the likes of mono and stuff playing house music um, I was always at home in Mono because I used to live there after the show. I used to go straight in there and that's where we'd, we'd all hang out. You know, we had the run of the place. So it was great. I'd get a Eddie Rockets after the radio show and a copy of Sunday World and head into Mono and sit upstairs and eat that and then sit there for the night drinking and listening <laughs> to Connor and, and uh, Raymond Franklin and people play tunes or whoever the guests were. Um, I was always the one that saw the opportunity to commercialize things. I think I always wasn't really a big drug taker. Mm-hmm. wasn't really into that scene in that way. So I saw the way to sort of connect that scene to the commercial world mm-hmm. um, and to sort of make it bigger, bigger, bigger. Um, and that's why the show that I did was very much commercially orientated. It was six to eight. It was the biggest tunes. It was the tunes that were crossing into the charts um, and so on. But on the flip side of that, I was doing gigs... And I was going out and I was playing tribal house mm-hmm. in some places. And the people were just like, play Maniac. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I was kind of a bit all over that place. I still am in that sense. Like, I haven't really found a, a real kind of straight road and flow. And that's me and that's what I do. I'm still all over the place trying to do loads of different things with loads of different kind of genres and, and styles. So, um I wouldn't have the credibility that Springer had or that John had or even that Connor had um, because they were, Connor was a house DJ. Mm. Timmy played hard house. Uh, John played techno and hard house. And that's what they did. And they got booked for the clubs that were predominantly people there mm-hmm. taking drugs, having a good time. Whereas I was the guy who had released that cheesy, awful dance record that nobody wants <laughs> to know about. <laughs> But he who laughs laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> and here we are. Who is touring in Dubai, Australia, <laughs> Vegas. We'll come back to that. But speaking of the M word, I'm afraid we're going to have to go there. Go. Um, a quick history lesson, right? Correct me if I'm wrong at any stage. So the original Michael Sambello maniac. Yes. In the movie Flashdance. Yes. There's a fantastic YouTube comment under a live performance of that. I'm going to read it to you, right? Oh, wow. I actually saw it this morning. In the video, it's him playing it live. He's got a black <laughs> wife beater on, right? And he's playing keyboard. There's a guy with a keytar there, right? Do you remember the keytars? It was like a keyboard just strapped around and played like a guitar okay yeah, you know, yeah. so which version was this uh, it's, it's, it's the original version right the Michael Zambella version yeah, oh, okay. yeah I'll show it to you in a minute I'll show it to you later but there's, um, there's a fantastic YouTube quote and it basically says this dude looks like he was working on a car now he's on his lunch break so he decides to come by this club and sing a song before going back to work oh wow okay. it is amazing right <laughs> I thought it was your one doing the, the run on the spot dance I don't know well, her, that's uh, from the movie flash dance but okay. there is a live performance oh, of it wow. by your man that's oh, going wow. around okay so it was <laughs> it was covered Covered in 94 by uh, Irish Outfit 4 Rhythm. That's co- right. Co-produced by Tim Hannigan, the aforementioned Mr. Spring. Yep. He later remixed it with Mark Cavanaugh under the SoundCloud moniker. That version of the track became a cult classic on the Dublin club scene. Various live raps added by the likes of DJ Wicked, Mick Lynn and Al Gibbs. Am I right so far? That's correct. So 4 Rhythm have a version, which is up online. And they had a different rap. I think they had a problem with... I don't know what happened actually because when I think of the one of the words has got to got bake like a cake in an oven you know when you do love it and they, they put it out as four rhythm and they followed it up with a track called Fragger Rock um, and then on that on that release there was a 12 inch version which was the sound crowd version which was Mark Cameron and Tim 
Tim Hannigan. Mm-hmm. They put that together. So that 12-inch version was being wrapped on by Mick Lynn, Al Gibbs, uh, DJ Wicked, and probably every other DJ that's ever said that they did it first. Where do you fit into this then? Because I assume you used to perform it live like the other lads. And did everyone have their own version or was there like an unofficial lyric sheet that everybody added to? Al Gibbs did the version that is known to this day. And what happened was he used to play in the likes of Hollywood Nights, which was in the Slogan Park Hotel. Uh, He was doing a slightly different angle in terms of where he was going. He was doing the Monday night selection or something like that which was a very upfront club show so his angle was cool credible dance music we started to run gigs in the likes of the Temple Theatre uh, Temple Bar places like that and I was asked to do the main room whereas Al would do the crypt mm-hmm. so he would play to a lot of mad out of its downstairs what an amazing room by the way yeah yeah uh, and I would play upstairs and play the more commercial type of stuff like mm-hmm. DJ Quicksilver Bellissima uh, DJ Sacken and Friends, you know, all that kind of love struck, that type of stuff. What night of the week are we talking around? What year as well? Uh, mostly under 18s, okay. and between 96 and 99. Okay. Um, so Al had his version, which every time I was at one of the Pulse gigs, I would have heard. So I knew it in a way, but didn't know it entirely. And when I got asked to do the main room, people were expecting that Maniac would be done. So it so happened on... One of the nights in the Temple Theatre, we were doing a live broadcast. We recorded it, and we recorded that version that night. So it was just like a random sort of accident that it became that thing. Because it was just a version which as such was ad-libbed to a certain extent because there were bits that I was putting in that Al didn't put in. There was bits that John Parry used to put in. And all of this kind of came together in this one version that got recorded and then started to get requested and got played on Pulse. And that's the version that sort of appeared as the tr- the version that everybody knew. So was that the version that kind of inspired Four Rhythm member Simon Fitzpatrick to approach Timmy about doing a new version in 99? No, that was Billy. Abby did okay, that. Okay, so it was Billy So Billy it. said, you know, look, I'm getting asked for this all the time. So do you want to put it out? So we went, okay. <laughs> and <laughs> that's... The rest is history, as they say. So Tim and, and Simon went back. They were uh, they produced the new instrumental. Mm-hmm. So I took the instrumental that they had produced, brought it out to the Cricket Club in Clontarf, which was an under-18s gig, set up a few mics, recorded it. Uh, it was a total disaster. <laughs> Everything distorted because the kids were so loud. Like we went in there going, you know, you're going to have to make a bit of noise. We're recording this. this is gonna be, you're going to yeah. be famous and all this. And they blew the place apart. Like it was like... It was just a small room with about 700 people in it and it was just crazy. How did you manage to save spots. it for the recording then if it was blown out? We actually, if you listen really closely, you'll hear that there's actually two vocals. So if you listen to it with headphones on and without the MP3 sort of uh, compression on it, uh, I had to go into a studio then and then re-add the, the vocal on top of it, overdub it. And then we added bit, bits more of crowd. It was mastered, and then I mastered it and made absolute balls of it. <laughs> the bass is in mono, the rest of it's in stereo. Like, it's just like, it's everything that shouldn't work 
and it did. I can see why you have such a love-hate kind of relationship with him in many ways. So that kind of explains how you were the one that ended up on the recorded version because by chance you were on the version that was played on Pulse, thus that was being requested on Pulse and then being requested in Abbey Discs with Billy. Was there any animosity from the other lads who were doing it at the time because that you were the one who ended up on it, on the recorded released version? No, because I rang Al because Pulse had had, uh, disbanded at this point and everybody was off. I think Al was off doing something else anyway. So I rang him and I said, look, Billy's approached me and he's asked me, will you do a release? And from Al's point of view, he was kind of focused on, on doing his thing, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I, it, it worked for both of us in that sense. Um, I mean, the animosity that followed afterwards from everybody else that wrote the rap and we apparently robbed it from. I don't know, you know, if Al robbed it from somebody <laughs> <Yeah>. else, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure he didn't. Um, you know, because I was there all those years whilst he was the only one that was doing it. And, you know, he was the one we were all looking up to and he killed it. But he just grew out of it, I think. And I kind of just fell into it and grew into it. Uh, and like I say, it was a combination of, you know, the bits he wasn't doing the Yogi Yogi bit. Yeah, I was just about to ask yeah, that. I hear that was your main contribution from your time in the Scouts, yeah, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And the Rocket Rocket. It, you know, what? it could have actually been John that mm. did the Yogi Yogi bit because we were both in Wesley at the time doing the Wes on a Friday night yeah. and it's possible I have a vague recollection of maybe John might have done it there but it was just a thing that we all did and it was just like It's just a call and response type thing you know Yeah, and it just works Yeah, <laughs> It's still in the top five selling Irish singles of all time yep. so it's fair to say you all did alright out of it in some shape or form Well some yeah. more than others, I would imagine. You'd be surprised. I remember being told that your share of it mostly went on a Pro Tools studio at the time. Is that true? Yeah, I got a bridging loan. I went straight out and bought a lot of gear. And I'm assuming that kind of rig is the type of thing now that you would be hard set to run one modern day oh, VST yeah. on at this stage. Yeah. Oh man, I bought a Pro Tools rig like five years ago for 16 grand and you can buy it on adverts now for like 300 quid. Oh. So it's like, yeah. I mean, that's just part and parcel of, of studios because... Yeah, I had <laughs> I spent a lot of money on studios and that was kind of my, my real passion mm-hmm. was having a studio um, and I ran it for a while in a place called The Factory on Barrow Street which was the room that they recorded Zeropa in and the Cranberries recorded in and the Frames recorded in it was a really good room and I had a really nice desk uh, and then that shut down and I moved it all down to a house in Wicklow and bought a vintage Neve console the only one in the country and had this great idea of setting up this really nice vintage studio because I'd been restoring all this gear and then the economy crashed and then it was like okay and then RTE came knocking and said hey would you like a full time pensionable (laughs) job? (laughs) Yes sir and I went yeah what happened with the international negotiations to license Maniac overseas? (laughs) I believe they broke down in mid 2000 what's the story? Um, Would it have worked outside of Ireland do you think? Um, I don't know in Scotland, Manchester, places like that probably would have because they're kind of along the same, they've got the same kind of mindset as us. You know, if you remember back to Ultrasonic and yeah. all of that kind of stuff, like they, they were into that, we were into that. So it, it would have worked in, at the time it was referred to as, hey, that, that, it'll be really big in the ritzy clubs up north. <laughs> That's what they were saying. That's mm-hmm. what they thought. So um, what happened, look, I speak to Billy, uh, I spoke to him two, three weeks ago. So How is know, Billy? He's great. Yeah, he's great. Is he enjoying life yeah. post records? Yeah, I think he is. Yeah, he plays golf. And uh, I think he still sets himself up in the odd record fair because he loves, he just loves that. He loves mm-hmm. that business. And I don't think he ever really wanted to, to get out of it. But unfortunately, that's the way it went. But I mean, we had a big falling out. So when I say I got a bridging loan for a studio, I, I bought a load of gear and was expecting a big check. 
and that big check didn't come because it was like everybody lost their minds because we had all of these people coming at us going, this is going to be massive. If you remember Oxide and Neutrino, yeah, of course. Casualty Zone, mm-hmm. that was out around the same time. And it was the first time that it was kind of like bedroom producers stroke bedroom DJs had managed to break through into the mainstream charts because before that, most of the stuff would be recorded in a big recording studio with a big producer. So there was this, the other track, White Something, it had a white cover with green thing on it. And it was this guy made it in his bedroom, same thing again. It was a massive hit. And they were all going, this is the next big thing. So we had all of these people approaching us from the UK saying that they wanted to license it. Um, so picture this, you're in a big, you know, east-west, uh, which, which was a big label in the UK and London, mm-hmm. and you're, you're ringing Abbey Discs. And you ring, hello? Tired answers <laughs> the phone. this is, uh, <laughs> you know, such and such from east-west records. We're looking for Billy Murray, if he's there, please. Hang on a sec. Billy! <laughs> Billy, phone! <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then Billy fumbles on the phone, hello? Yeah. Um, that's what they were dealing with. And he was completely caught off guard for what was being thrown at him. I mean, we sat at a table in a coffee shop opposite Abbey Discs, myself and Billy. And it was somebody from East West. And there was a bidding war going on at the time between East West and somebody else. I can't remember what the other label was. And they said, we will write you a check right now for 130000 sterling. That was a lot of money. You know, it is a lot of money regardless. Mm-hmm. But back then, that was even more money because sterling was really worth something. Like, yeah. I think it was almost double what the pounds at the time or whatever it was at the time. And we just weren't prepared for it. And Billy wasn't prepared for it. And I think we all just got completely lost. And contracts started to arrive from solicitors in London. You know, sign this, can't pay you till you do. Um, me going, What? Like, how old, are you, how old are you this? at this stage? 21. And then, you know, on top of that, the golden age of, like, Westlife. This track stops Westlife from getting six consecutive number ones. Um, and here's me without any management, without any, you know, label, without anything. Proper DIY. Yeah, total DIY. And uh, we all just lost our minds and completely... Blew it, <laughs> I suppose. But how how does that happen? How do you come to blow it when you've like people knocking down your door with fat checks? Because I think they got they got pissed off that they weren't getting the kind of responses they would expect from Billy because he simply just did not know how to handle it. Okay, um, you know they were ringing the shop and they were getting him when he was there. Uh, there was no, I mean, they they got on a plane and they flew over to try and do the deal and they couldn't do the deal. I think they just at the end of it they went, you know what. This is just too messy. That's mad. Because, so. like, you know, from an outsider looking in, you would imagine it was just a signature on a piece of paper and the masters. Yeah, that were needed. Yeah, yeah. You know? But, you know, look, strange things, where there's a hit, there is a writ. <laughs> that is the way it goes. There's there- always going to be people who will come out of the woodwork when a song is successful. I'm not just saying it about this. It just happens. Yeah. You know, somebody who was in the room next door and said, you know, it'd be great there if you did that. You know, then suddenly they want 20, 30% of the publishing on it. Well, you see that on songwriting credits nowadays. You know what I mean? Like, you only have to look at some of the world's biggest artists and there's like 15 people yeah. on the credits because somebody might have coughed in the background yeah. and it's on the track, yeah. you know? Was life a little Spinal Tap-esque back then? I remember being in the Beacon in Court Town one night and I was there just on a night out. I don't think even it was an official PA by yourself. 
maybe you just happened to be in the building and somebody handed you a mic. But I remember you doing it live and I remember the mob that ensued post-performance around you. Remember like, that, oh man, I'm getting flashbacks now of the beacon and how cool it used to be in that yeah, vibrating right. dance floor yeah, and stuff. Yeah, it, was, it used to be roller rink. Oh. So the floor was on springs. Okay, I so never knew that's that. What, that's what, so you'd, you'd walk in as soon as you walked onto it because everybody was moving, you would start to move. Bless your Wexford yeah. heritage yeah, and knowledge, you sir. But I remember that that time. And like, did that happen a lot? Was that something you would have been booked for, or was it just times that you were out and you were like, "Hey, I fancy a bit of adulation. Give me that mic." I would have spent a lot of time in Castletown, hence why we had the radio station there. So the Beacon was kind of a club close to my heart. So I got booked there twice, I think, and the second time it unfortunately went horribly wrong because I was in the bar and I had six friends with me and we walked from the bar into the club and the guy who owned it at the time didn't take very kindly to the fact that I had walked through the kitchen and why was I bringing five people with me and they can go out that way and pay to come in the front door. Oh wow! This was to do a gig for you know, not very much money simply because I was in the area. Yeah. And it was just kind of cool. Would love to. I'll come down. No problem. I thought you were going to tell me you were with six friends and you just got pissed in no. the bar and it just went arseways. No. And then he, my car was in the back gate and he locked the car in the back and he wouldn't let me get it out. And it turned really nasty, unfortunately. But it closed down like six months later. So mm, That's mad. Whatever happened. It was a great club, but I think somebody took it over. They made a balls of it. They made an absolute balls of it because he just had this attitude of this is my club and I do what I want to do with it. Mm, king of my castle, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. I've met your two little boys. Are they aware of how much of a legacy their dad has left on Irish music? I know they're still quite <laughs> young, but when they do come of age, how will you explain that to them or would you let them find out for themselves? I know they know. Like they know that, I mean, for them it's like in school, my dad's got like 200 million streams <laughs> <laughs> and none of them are from Maniac by the way. Um, so that's kind of the, in there that's how they sort of quantify it they quantify it yeah but they also I mean they came to the beat in the street mm-hmm. uh, last summer that was the first live gig that they had come to which was really great to, to see so one of them was a bit scared because it was very noisy mm-hmm. and loud but uh, Josh who's a little bit older he, he kind of gets it uh, and he's he's just me he's into music plays piano Um and I, I would imagine that's probably somewhere where he, where he will go. Also, that evening, your missus, I met her and she dropped a little interesting tidbit that, like myself, you suffer from an affliction of an addiction to shoes. Oh, yeah, yeah. What are the origins of that with you? <laughs> I don't know. I just always liked runners. <laughs> the problem is I used to buy loads of runners mm. and only wear like two pairs of them and the rest of them would just sit there because I'd think that they looked great, but I'd put them on and be like, mm. <laughs> they look great, but they don't look great in me. Yeah, I've had pairs so. like that. I remember a pair of feelers I had in my teenage years that were like that. Can you remember like what the start of it was? As in, like, what was the first pair of shoes you kind of coveted to an pumps. extent? Probably pumps. Okay, Reebok pumps with the orange pump up on the. And they made the tennis edition ones as well that looked like a tennis ball. Yeah. Alec, yeah. You are hardcore now in, in terms of trainers. Me, <laughs> at this point now, I'm just like, right, well, I know that if I want something that no one else got, has got, I use an app called Goat. The odd time and I'll you pay through the nose, nose for that, for man. You madman. Yeah, but you get stuff that other people don't have. And for me, at the moment, it's just NMDs. Yeah, I just that's they work, they fit, they're comfortable, they suit my jeans. How so many pairs do you have at this moment in time? Probably not that big twelve. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, your missus told me that you give away loads. I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To her brother or something? Is that right? Yeah, Our nephew. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but something else that we've we've got in common as well is our uh, taste in suitcases. 
Oh yeah, which quite surprised me. Oh, well. I remember when I bought that uh, that aluminium thing. That like, no, actually, do you know how to pronounce the the brand? Rimowa. Okay. When I started buying them, I got the smaller one, and I used to call it Rimowa, right? Okay. Then it was Rimowa. I thought we're actually saying it wrong. It's okay. Rimowa. Okay, because it's German. German. It's all right, a V. Rimowa. But yeah, I was actually quite shocked in in that because I remember seeing you, you replied to the story when I got it. To explain to people listening, <laughs> we own these really ridiculously, stupidly kind of expensive suitcases that yours is like the, the black aluminium titanium. Stealth, thing, yeah. The stealth yeah. one. I have the normal pauper <laughs> steel titanium one. It looks like something of a James Bond movie that you're carrying a bomb in. Yeah. But you also, like me, got the one with the screen on it. Yeah. And, oh, but that's another one, actually. Oh, okay. That's a different oh, one, yeah. How many unfortunately, I... I don't know whether you told me this, but they've discontinued. That yeah, they've screen. discontinued yeah. because people just um, weren't, didn't did, buy into it. Yeah, and I think um, the whole idea of it was that you could, instead of going to the airport and getting a sticker that has the barcode for your flight on it, you'd be able to transfer the barcode from an app on your phone. Right. So it would be on the screen. But there wasn't enough airlines that picked up on it. Super and, cool idea. Oh, so cool. Like living in the future type stuff. But, you know... As, I, as Michael J. Fox said, they're, they're just not ready right now, but their kids are going to yeah, love it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things. It's I, so cool. I have a saying, which is buy cheap, buy twice. Mm. And it's been proved time and time and time again. And if you go and you spend a stupid amount of money on a, on a suitcase like that, and we do a fair amount of travel, so I can justify it. But I know that like, if the wheel falls off, I can buy a new wheel. Mm. If the handle falls off, I can buy a new handle. And I'm all about that. Like I've, My Philips Sonicare toothbrush stopped working. <laughs> So, you know, I'm on Google, Philips Sonicare toothbrush week. And sure enough, there's loads of videos and it's just one little screw, open it up, tighten it up and it's fixed. It's done. And it's stupid money to buy with and you shouldn't have to, you know, mm-hmm. take it apart and fix it for yourself. But I'll have that toothbrush for years. <laughs> That's how I justify it anyway. Moving on from our strange addictions and uh, the world of maniac, a deal with Universal was inked and love is in the air followed oh, in 2001. God. Now this tune... It seems has been scrubbed from existence. <laughs> the sleeve appears in a tiny JPEG on Discogs. Could not find the audio for diamonds. I could yeah. not find it. Um, did you play any part in it being scrubbed from the internet, might oh, I ask? Jesus. I wish I could completely remove I'm, it from... I'm trying to remember. Was that like a proper cover of Love is in the Air? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Full on. The one. <laughs> and what happened was certain people were away in Ibiza. Okay. And there was Milk Inc., yeah, had done a version of it, and it was it worked brilliantly as it would on a terrace in Ibiza when you're off your face. Mm-hmm. So, Tico here says, "You know that'd be a great idea. I'm going to do that." Unfortunately, I wasn't producing at the time. I knew live sound. I knew how to do live sound, but I didn't know how to do you know music production. And I'd only just bought a bit of gear, and I was starting to learn. Um, so yeah, that was the problem. Uh, have a hit record and then be expected to produce a follow-up. So I was teamed up with other people, and we went in and we recorded a version of it, um, and just the production was pretty lame, and the whole thing was a bit lame. But it did well, it went top ten. Failed to replicate the success of Maniac, though. Oh yeah, of course. Was it a hard time, kind of, for you? Mentally kind of coming off that that huge wave that you'd had? Um, I don't know, I never really thought about that, actually. I knew that it would take me, and I said it at the time, I said, this, it's going to take me 10 years to get away from this track. And I was wrong. Like 15, 18 years later, here we are. And I'm still not away from it. So I knew that it was as big as that, that 
it was like one hit wonder territory. Mm. And you're really going to have to struggle if you want to try and do anything in terms of, you know, credible music or, you know, production. You're really going to struggle um, to do this. And at the time, I didn't know how to do it. That was the biggest problem. So that's where I kind of went, you know what? This isn't for me. Something you did know how to do that was Tribal House. Because yourself and Jay Sisko had that thing yeah. on Twisted as Digi Tribe. Yeah. Now, Twisted was amazing back then because, like, Super Chumbo, Danny Tanaglia, yeah. like, absolute gods of house music. And you even remixed Super Chumbo, am I right? Yeah. How did that signing come about to Twisted? How did that happen? We, I had, I had bought, I put it down to a drum machine. I bought a drum machine and it had this really uh, nice sub noise which I delayed and it became the basis of this track over, um, which was sent by Cisco to Tom Stefan. And he was playing in Ministry. And Ministry's PA, their sound system was, you know, at the time and still is like phenomenal, like world class. And this track in that room through that PA just blew his mind apart. <laughs> now, what year was this? This was very early noughties. Yeah, 2000. How did he send it to him? Was it by three. post or he, Yeah. No, he gave, oh, he gave, or he gave it to him. Maybe he was over for a... He gave it to him in the kitchen. Okay. So he, he was, was playing and the following night he went to ministry. Yeah. Excellent. So, there you go. Proper old school, yeah. you know, kind of hand-delivered tracks and then you ended up on one of the most important house music labels of all time. Yeah. You know? Which yeah. was really cool. Because everybody was like, that McCabe Muppet, and his <laughs> maniac track. And that track, I mean, Cisco was, was great for, um, you know, he, he, he doesn't have technical skill. Mm. So that track was very much, you know, my doing in that sense. I mean, he certainly was, was there and involved at the time in shaping the sound. But it was, it was you know, I constructed it from, from the ground up. And it was kind of the first, one of the first things that I really had done that I was kind of proud of from a production point of view in more recent years how the hell did you become involved in Eurovision <laughs> well I'm dragging out all the skeletons yeah, you here you really are not you <laughs> um, my first was I twice yeah I was twice involved with Eurovision once was I was asked to be a mentor mm-hmm. so I went off and I kind of you know for anybody who isn't in Ireland Eurovision is seen as something completely different like it's really well regarded in other countries like, Whereas over here it's, it's that thing we were fucking we were, deadly at in yeah. the 90s and yeah, but now, now we're, it's, uh, it's crap. And we don't really want it because no. we can't afford it. Exactly. So I was approached to be a mentor and I had the girl called Amy Fitzpatrick and we wrote a song and I produced it and we lost the track because the people who uh, wrote it originally didn't want it used. This was two days before we were due to submit it so we had to go back into the studio, find another track, re-record it and get it done. Um, we went on the Late Late Show. We won the judges vote or the audience I can't remember we, lo- we lost the other one we came second in the other one I think we lost the public vote that was the and year I, the song that won it went on to go last in the yeah, overall competition yeah, I think it got like one point or something five like points that, so. checked it out earlier but yeah <laughs> but like Eurovision especially in this country up until last year has been a very closed circle and it was the same people doing the same thing over and over again and I think that, like, the song we had wasn't bad. Amy was a bit young. She turned 18 on the day that we performed it. But, look, it wasn't to be. Um, and then, you know, it was a good experience. It was good to be involved in it. And then last year I was approached um, just to produce it because they had the track. They had Ryan who, you know, took a big gamble by sort of 
putting himself into it because of the stigma that it has. Um, but the track was just a little bit too sort of downbeat and slow for what would be a stadium performance. Um, so I kind of rejigged it, changed the tempo and just produced it into what it was and we did okay. Is it something you could see yourself revisiting maybe down the line or have you kind of had your fill of it? Eurovision? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think I've had my fill of it, yeah. Is it as mad over there as people make it? I didn't it? go. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't go. Maybe if I'd gone, I'd be a bit more enthusiastic about it, but mm. I kind of produced it and left it and let them go off and it gets sucked into the Eurovision machine. You know, there's a, it has a, you know, Eurovision Ireland has a staffing. Okay. You know, there are people. <laughs> Is it government job. funded by any chance? Well, it's public service. So, wow. yeah, it's, it's license fee funded. That's a handy number. Yeah. Wow. So well, I don't know. I must we'll send see. them a CV. It still is a really good opportunity for somebody. I don't know who's going to try and take it on this year. They've got the two double whammy. Like one, it's going over to a part of the world that people don't want to go to mm-hmm. for various reasons and don't want to be seen to be supporting it because it's there. And two, you know, if you go into Eurovision, you've got to go into it ignoring whatever happens here and just going, I've got a plan. I've got four tracks or five tracks or an album and I'm just going to go and work Europe. And I'm going to try and make a name for myself in Europe because you can. Do you think there's any merit in taking the Swedish approach like years ago when they sent ABBA? If we were to send somebody like Picture This or somebody with a kind of, you know, a following or chops that have been we, proven. But we should. Because even if we didn't win, you can't like, the guys are good. Their mm. songs are good. So if it doesn't win, it doesn't win. You know, it's still a massive platform for people to get the exposure on. It's just that there's a bit of a stigma kind it's of attached to it. stigma to it, yeah. And that's, I mean... I don't know. I mean, the, that's the, the problem they have now is trying to find somebody who's kind of credible in that sense that has the skill to be able to carry it off on such a big stage because it's not an easy performance. Like, mm. It's a very, very big arena. You're in there with a lot of people, a lot of glitz, a lot of glam, a lot more budget, and they want it. Like, There's some countries there that really want to win it and they take it really seriously. And it's gone so political as well with all the Eastern Bloc countries, a lot I, of it as well. I don't, I don't think so. No? No, I don't think that really plays a part anymore. I think the song, if the song's good, the song's good. It transcends it. It transcends it, yeah. It gets past that. Music transcends get, all. Yeah, How exactly. philosophical. Yeah. You've experienced somewhat of a rebirth. Like, you know, you had the success of Maniac, then the kind of the dip after the Tribal House period. But you're smashing out tracks that are doing the business. 18 million YouTube plays last year. 31 million Spotify streams and 3 million fans. You're doing all right. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. And none of it's to do with Maniac. Yeah. That's the really, that's kind of the, the good thing. Is that very satisfying? It is, yeah. Yeah, because I always, like, I'm in, I'm in the process of having a tattoo lasered off my arm. Oh, okay, go and, on. Because I got the barcode from Maniac tattooed on my arm. <laughs> I kind of like the idea of that, kinda, though. Yeah, it was like, you know, this has defined me. And then when I kind of got back into it again, um, and started producing again because I'm only really producing again three years. Mm. Um, I was I kind of made the decision that I didn't want it to define me, um, and I got really lucky with the remix for Gav, uh, for Nervous. Like that's just phenomenal numbers. So I mean, as my first outing beyond Maniac, um, you know, back on the the scene to do those kind of numbers, 150 million streams is like okay. And plus, you've That's got the benefit with like Irish expats around the world are open to you because of the Maniac Association, but will still be, you know, um, on board with what you're playing these days in a nightclub. 
kind of maybe sometimes on the pretense that you will do Maniac at some stage or something might occur along those lines be it an up to date remix of it or whatever yeah. but like Australia Dubai you were in Vegas for the McGregor fight what have the reactions been like is it still as wild over there as it is at home when expats kind of hear it oh yeah yeah especially like I mean the McGregor thing was the Irish on tour mm-hmm. uh, there were a few you know people that were living there now and they were grateful to see me but that was more Irish people on tour that were there for the McGregor fight so I think that they kind of had lived the rebirth mm. uh, at home, but Australia was just mental. Really? Mental. Because you'd have so many people who would have moved over there during the crash. And at just, that age. Yeah. You know, and it was just Paddy's day as well. And it was just insane. Insane. And then same with Dubai, really the same kind of thing. But the funny thing about Dubai was that there were quite a lot of non-Irish there okay. that didn't really understand what was going on. But Flashdance fans. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this guy came up to me and I think he was Indian. And he was like, I have no idea who you are, but this is fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I actually had a conversation with somebody lately and we were talking about tracks that no matter where you are in the world in a nightclub, they will wreck the place, right? So for the Irish in there, that is definitely, like Maniac 2000 is definitely one of those. But like, It joins the likes of, say, House of Pain's Jump Around, yeah. which also has an Irish tinge to it. Um, the Fratelli's Chelsea Dagger is yeah, another yeah, kind yeah. of club wrecker. And again, they're Scottish the other two kind of are Irish tinge. So, yeah, I think, you know, people talk about the kind of Celtic nature of music and just how rousing it can be. But Maynick is definitely on that list. Yeah. I'd love to see it played somewhere in a club where there are no Irish people to yeah. see would it get much of a reaction. You yeah. should do that as a scientific test. Maybe go on holiday and slip a DJ a tenor in, like, Mumbai. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to find out anytime <laughs> soon because I don't think it's, you know, it's not up for re-release. You mentioned to me once before about the benefit of alternate seasons around the world because it's now summertime in Australia and you told yeah. me you were focusing on stuff over there yeah what's going on at the minute um, we missed the boat oh okay for this year um, it's just not right it's really important to get it right and I just felt that it's not right and the team feel it's not right as well so rather than go out and, and make a half hour effort um, we just decided to, to hold back so but I have another another track coming out now with Sights Okay. Um, I've worked on a track with them. So that's coming out uh, end of April, I think, 2019. Um, and then another one pretty quick after that that's ready to go. And then that one that should have gone for this Australian summer stroke winter will probably go for next year. You mentioned the Gavin remix, uh, Gavin James of Nervous, wasn't it? Yep. And also your remix of the Sunset Brothers. Were they remixes that you were solicited to do or did you do them off your own back and then present them to the artist and be like, hey, look, I've done this. What do you think? Blah, blah, blah. How did it work? So I know Gavin for, for years because he posted a Daft Punk cover years ago and I saw it and uh, I just thought it was amazing. Really, really good. And he came into, I was doing Weekend Breakfast on 2FM at the time. So he hadn't really been doing any kind of, you know, promo or anything like that. He hadn't, he wasn't signed or nobody really knew of him. So he, um, he came in and he did the, uh, the track for me live on the radio. And then I would know his manager, Edison, really well, um, just from years because I had written with Laura Eisenborg, who he used to work for. Um, and he just said, hey, look, would you be into trying to give this uh, a turn? And I did. And that was it. And then the Sunset Brothers... I had worked a version which was a little bit more commercial because I saw the potential in that track. Um, and we just, uh, it, was a, it was a label decision to sort of team the two of us up 
and for them to sort of benefit off whatever uh, audience that I would have already had here. How on earth have they not been sued by Nalan and Kane for how much it sounds like beach ball? It's all cleared. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's all above It's all above board. I was wondering, because every time I hear them, I'm just going like, how are those lads not getting pulled by the ear? Into no, you can do anything. I mean, you can, you can re-record any track you mm-hmm. want and put it out under your name. You just need to go and ask for permission. And if they give you permission, then it's fair game. Your track Over Me was a huge smash last year as well. Radio up and down the country. What's the writing process for something like that? Because this often kind of baffles me in all my years of like playing around producing dance tracks. Never done anything with a vocal as such. Does the track come first and then you will write the vocals to it? Or is it slightly in reverse? Because I would imagine it must be an awful pain in the arse to try and write a dance track around pre-written vocals. Um, and how much control do you retain in that or do you leave it to the singers? It can work, but it works both ways. Over Me in particular was actually... He had written it as an R&B song, um, which just didn't have the, you know, when I heard it, I was like, this is more than this, than what I'm hearing. So I kind of had a, a, you know, a different sort of idea for it than he had originally. So I pulled his vocal from, you know, what was originally an R&B track and created the production that you would know today. Um, but like the sites track was written as an instrumental that we then approached, you know, a vocal on top of that once the instrumental was written. So, um, but it can work. It can work either way. And a lot of the time people will produce if you don't have a vocalist to hand, you just pull an acapella from something that you really like and you kind of build the version around that and then pull the acapella out and then have somebody sing something new or write a new melody for the top line. Okay. So, but it can work either way. It's, it's been a lesson, sir. There you go. Um, the only way is up. Dream collaborations. Oh wow! We'll say like dream collaborations, but also ones that you feel are within reach that you would like to work with. There's a lot of like that. What I really like about Nervous is the fact that, regardless of the production, it's a really beautiful song, um, and it has real depth and real meaning. And anybody who can write, like, like, that's a gift to be able to write at that level. And he has it in spades. Like, every track he does is written from a place which is just so deep. Um, it's, uh, it's really admirable. Whereas you can find, you know, like a, a Becky Hill or, a, you know, a Jonas Blue track or something like that. It's just pop music. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's grand. But it'll pass and it'll date and it'll age. And as is proven with Nervous by the fact that like, it's still doing 50,000 streams a day. Wow. Um, when you get songs like that and singers and songwriters that can write on that level, your job is half done. It becomes really easy to sort of just sort of uh, accompany what they've already done. Whereas if the vocal isn't as strong then you're sort of moving more towards production being as important as uh, the actual melody or the topic that's been sung about. So there's a lot of really, like I'd love to work with Dermot Kennedy Mm -hmm. um, because he's got that. Have you seen him live? I haven't, no. I was at the gig in um, Vicar Street a while back. Phenomenal. Have my tickets for the Olympia already. I saw him at a festival in Belgium uh, summer last year 
and at three or four o'clock in the day the place was full for him yeah. you know what I mean like incredible voice yeah. and I love as well how he focuses not so much on wanting to be famous in Ireland he's, lo- he's looking further afield he's working with hip hop producers yeah. he has an EP produced by Mike Dean who is of course Kanye West's executive producer on all his albums Mike, Mike Dean is the guy who discovered Travis Scott yeah. you know who has blown up so much in recent years he even got Kylie Jenner pregnant um, you know, like that's the level you're talking to people he's working with. And I think he is just one massive hit away from exploding because there's so many people that I talked to about Dermot Kennedy and they're like, who? And then I play it to them and they might know moments past or they might know something else. But then you introduce it to them all and they'll come back a couple of weeks later and be going like, Jesus Christ, I've just spent 150 quid on that limited edition album they yeah. released for Record Store Day. And they're obsessed with him. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. I just think he's one massive track away from a huge breakthrough. He just needs to break America. Mm. You know, if he did America, then he's up in hosier territory then, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, I mean, that's the, the the sometimes tragic outcome of the music industry is sometimes people like that, for whatever reason, it doesn't happen because they just weren't in the right place at the right time. You know, he's and got all the talent, he's got all the fans, because he's selling out shows worldwide. Like, he's on an American tour at the minute, that's gone insane. I think he needs to sing the hook on a, on a hip-hop track. yeah. <laughs> That's what I think needs to happen. And that probably will. Dermot Kennedy's management, call me. <laughs> I have the, the path to riches. Yeah. Now, uh, people, people are aware of the power of collaborations in that sense. Um, I mean, even in the dance music world, David Guetta's name is, or David Guetta's name, mm-hmm. is all over a lot of pop tracks. And he's had nothing to do with them. But mm-hmm. they know that you know, he brings something to it and they bring something to him. So it's a, it's a collaboration sort of world that's how how people work so but I, look some, somebody like him I would love to work with but then I would love to do something with like somebody like Becky Hill mm-hmm. she's just got such a great vocal um, I'm also a big fan of Ina Rosen who's done a lot of stuff with Jax Jones that type of stuff I love pop music I love dance pop music so um, you know whatever things seem to just you know in a, in a way they kind of organically happen for some reason, you'll be you'll be somewhere and you meet somebody, or you'll talk to somebody, or you'll have remixed something, and that hasn't worked. But you met this person, and they knew this person, and for some weird reason, things just happen. So I hope they do. What does Mark McCabe listen to at home or in the car? <laughs> Go on, you can give me the cheese fest. I listen to terribly cheesy stuff. I love Rod Stewart and Elton John, and I suppose they're not really cheesy. They're very much of their time and stuff like that, but. I listen to some atrocious music. Do you? Yeah, yeah I'm on terrible. I've stuff. stopped. I've stopped listening to music in that way, which I think is is really bad for my musical health. Well, I just like kind I, of think of it as there's good music and there's bad music, and yeah. it's all defined by my opinion of what's good and bad. So yeah, you know, yeah. fuck everybody else. I don't know. I'm spending quite a lot of time in the studio, so at the moment I end up listening to my own stuff. Oh, you egomaniac! Like, but not because you take it out of the studio to listen to it in the car to see mm. how it sounds and to get yourself out of that headspace in the studio. So that's part of the process, and I'm kind of doing a lot of that at the moment. I spoke to sorry, not to cut across you. I spoke to Maverick Sabre uh, recently, and he does a fantastic thing in London. Um, I saw him do it on Instagram last year, and I spoke to him about it. It's something that he would do with his third album whilst he was working on it, that he would go to the studio, cut a demo or whatever, and uh, then sit on the back of a bus in London and drive through London and listen to the music and see if it soundtracked yeah. what was around him. Yeah. And you mentioned like the car radio test is a big thing. Yeah. But it's just getting yourself out. I mean, the Nervous remix was done in a coffee shop. I did that upstairs in Starbucks, still organ. Right on a laptop, 
You were one of those laptop wankers in a yeah, Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was just being able to, and I actually, like, I've, I've gone full circle again because I thought, oh, well, you know, I can't really be doing this on a laptop if I want to do it properly. So, you know, I bought a big piece of studio furniture and I've got really nice monitors and I've got a, a Mac Pro with 16 cores and, you know, all of this. But now I'm going, actually, I, I just bought a laptop today <laughs> <laughs> because I want to do the same again. I want to get out of that space where I am all the time because it's at home. I don't, I don't go off to a studio every day. So to be able to sort of go out into the real world and see people and see the world moving around you is a really different headspace to be in than if you're just in a room looking at a monitor. Um, and it just means that things change all the time. I can go anywhere in the world at any time and I can make music now. That's the way technology has, has progressed, you know, which is phenomenal. I can go to the gym and I can sit you know, in the coffee shop for three hours, go for a swim and then come back and do some more. Something that really blew my mind one time was uh, I was running a gig and I had Timo Mass over and I had to pick him up from the airport and we were driving from the airport down to Waterford and he pulled out his iPhone and um, he was smoking a joint in the car because it was on his rider that you have to uh, provide flowers for Timo, right? Mm-hmm. That's how it's coded on his, on his rider. Okay. And he told me so many times he's shown up for gigs at the airport and people are standing there with bunches of flowers okay. for him, right? Wow. But he's sitting there and he's in his element and uh, he whips out the phone and he pulls out, I'm not sure if it was a Native Instruments app or whatever, but he basically started writing a bass line in front of me in the car. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's good. Oh, I like this vibe. I'm going to take this home and he, like, obviously he uses a ghost producer. I've seen like his Slices episode where Timo sits in the background stoned out of his mind and just, you know, he, he creates the vibe that yeah. the music is made in and all this stuff. But he just sat there and made his bass line in front of me. And um, But he'll take that phone then and he'll go back to that producer and he'll say, hey, I'll have a listen to this. <laughs> and it'll be him going, dum, 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 you know, mm-hmm. we get this vibe. That's what it's about. Yeah. It's about ideas. It's not about gear. It's all about ideas. And, then he, and that's taken me a long time to figure that out. Yeah. So he's had the idea. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter that he's gone off and had a ghost producer do it. Oh, no, of course. He had and, the idea. Especially when it's somebody like Martin Butrick, who he works with or worked with in the past, who is a musical genius. And you give them that little shred, that, yeah. little, that little thread that they will just pull and pull and then it will just you know go crazy. He told me a great, fantastic story, a bit of dance music trivia if you want it. Do you remember how important his remix of Azito the Bass was? Yeah. Doom's Night, right? Um, that, obviously, the womp, 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 that was complete accident, right? Uh, he more or less hated, they made it as a piss take because it was the second remix they uh, had done, had offered to Azito the Bass. He hated the first one. And they basically wanted to say, fuck you, we're going to make the most non it wasn't really a club friendly track unless you pitched it up to about plus eight right but um, we're going to make the most non-accessible kind of sounding thing we're going to do this and you know just as an effort to stick a finger up at you so they made the second mix and it was uh, Doom's Night and your man took it and then it blew up and became a massive crossover hit remember he was on so many compilations and he told me that like he's still in legal battles trying to get money that he's owed to it but um, the first remix that they turned in that was refused do you know what it turned into no do you remember Ubik Oh yeah, remember his track? Dun, dun, yeah. da, da, dun, dun, dun. That was it. That was the first uh, Doom's Night remix that was turned down, and they just kept it and just put it back out. And wow, massive success. Paul Oakenfold played it everywhere. It was signed to Perfecto. It was huge, and they did three versions. Not a lot of people know that it was Ubik the Dance. There was also Ubik the Techno and Ubik the Breaks, but the others were only on the double pack promo. <laughs> Complete DJ <laughs> nerdgasm there now. Um, lastly, 
kind of asked this question of a lot of people, but it often uh, interests me. If it all ended tomorrow, what's your proudest achievement? Would you stand by the the maniac thing because of the love hate relationship, or is there something else in your past professional or personal life that uh, you would my consider? My children are my greatest achievement, of, of course. Of course, yeah, apart from you know my beautiful wife <laughs> being able to uh, apart from the family, come on, or me. professionally. Um, look, I did it, you know, I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of things, I had a hit, you know, and that's, uh, like I said to you earlier, that's something that people will spend their entire lives trying to do and will never achieve it. And to have done that in whatever way, shape or form, um, once was amazing. Um, I suppose what I'm most proud of now would be, you know, in a nutshell, my Spotify page. Mm-hmm. because that is ultimately the source for what I'm doing and the music I'm making or the music I'm producing. Um, and I've been really lucky to work with like James Arthur, um, Gabriel Applin, um, you know, quite a few different singer-songwriters, Jamie, Jamie Lawson, who's good mates with Ed Sheeran. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be personally, but I mean, nothing can... This, I've heard some crazy stories, you know, from people over the years about what the track has meant to them. And the weirdest thing happened actually a while ago where I was at a gig and for years I had spoken to, I had spoken about this guy because I, I don't really remember it because it was that time. But I, had, I was asked to go out to this guy's house because this guy had had an accident and he was in a coma and he woke up out of the coma and the first thing he said was, can I listen to Maniac? Right? <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. Okay, I know, it's crazy. He had gone to a nightclub, been in a car accident on the way home, and for whatever reason, his last memory was Maniac. And he wanted to hear this when he came out of the coma. So somebody knew somebody who knew somebody who knew me. So they said, would you mind calling out to him um, and just saying hi? And I remember going out to the house and this guy was in a downstairs room, living room, where they had put a bed and he was in bits. Like he was in bits. He was proper smashed up. Um, and I always remember going, yeah, that's mad that this guy, you know, woke up out of a coma and the first thing he wanted to do was hear that track. And that kind of just sums it up to me. But I was in a club there recently and somebody approached me and they said, oh, you went to see my friend. And we connected it. And it was that guy who had whatever, and I don't know where he is or what he's doing now or, or whatever, but it was just like, I've seen people with tattoos. You know, people have gone and got tattoos that say Maniac or I'm, you know, Maniac on the dance floor or the lyrics from the track. You know, it, it's like the conflict I have is that music is supposed to be about emotion. It's supposed to be about Radiohead, Gavin James, or you know, beautiful symphonic strings in a trance track. Um, it touches people in a way that we don't really understand. You know, it's bigger than religion. It's subliminal. It's subliminal, subconscious. It's all of that. It's universal. Um, and to have been involved with something that, for whatever reason, is a bunch of sound waves that is perceived by people in the way that it's perceived and the joy that it brings to people, you know, that's like a massive achievement in whatever way, shape or form. It could be a knock on the door that you recorded like this. You know, if the world wants to love it, let them love it, you know. So I guess it would, I mean, ultimately it has to be maniac, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) I suppose as much as I love it and hate it.